this is Robert Meyer Burnett, the director of Free Enterprise, the producer of The Hills Run Red, and weekly guest on Collider Heroes. And you are listening to the Atomic Podcast, where they blow up the news on a verbal scale. Intellectual stimulation by way of mobile devices. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Atomic Podcast. And here is your host of the show, Efren Guzman. Ladies and gentlemen, editor, producer, filmmaker, the man, the myth, the legend, Robert Meyer Burnett. Robert, how you doing? I'm doing great. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me on the show. I appreciate that. You like that little intro I did for you? I, I certainly did. You know, I, it's funny, I, I, people are always asking me, like, well, what is it you do, dude? And I'm like, well, you know, I, I like, I, I mean, I look at filmmaking as sort of an overall discipline. And I was interested in all facets of it, the writing of it, the producing of it, directing, editing. To me, it was all kind of the same thing. So you needed to learn all of those things. But I think primarily I've made a living as an editor. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what I've done the most of. Right now I'm editing a, a feature film, and I've, it, that's paid my, paid my rent for the, uh, the, the last 20 years. Uh, editor, but you know you're also a filmmaker as well. You're also a writer. You're also a panelist. There's so many different things. Well, what what would you say? You you just say your main thing is you're just an editor, right? Well, yeah. I mean, I think you know what it is. I I I would consider myself a filmmaker, whatever that means. I mean, so many disciplines that fall under that. But ultimately, I'm a storyteller because. When I'm a panelist on a show or at a convention or I'm being interviewed like by you right now or whether I'm making a movie, what you're trying to do is convey information to other people. And I think that the, the best way to, to do that is, is through telling stories. Mm-hmm. Whether I'm telling you a story now or whether you're sitting down and watching a documentary that I've made or a film that I've worked on, a film I've edited, I would consider my my life's work to tell stories that hopefully illuminate uh, the human condition. And, and ultimately, I'm a very, I think, positive person, and I I, I tend to believe in that that humanity belong. Humanity has a future, and we will one day reach the stars and hopefully um, endure for centuries, if not millennia, to come. So that's what I'd like to convey in my work. Especially with your work, um, how did you, did you have an epiphany when you was a child, like, this is what you wanted to do? Like, how did this come about? Yeah, you know, I mean, I, when I was a little kid, I was a movie fanatic, and there was no, back then there was only three television networks, you know, and Mm -hmm. there was no home video, so you couldn't, and certainly no internet, so you couldn't. Whatever something was on TV, when I would stumble across, I loved Star Trek as a little kid, mm-hmm. original Star Trek. I loved the Twilight Zone. I mean, I started watching Star Trek when I was like four or five, and then I discovered Twilight Zone a little bit later. And there was sci-fi theater on Sundays in Seattle, where I grew up. And I was just enamored of all of those things. I, you know, I don't know why. Like, why do you get enamored of these things? But for some reason, I was. And, you know, when you'd stumble across, I'll tell you a funny story. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would watch anything to do with space when I was a kid. 
across what I knew was an astronaut in the cockpit of a spaceship, and he was he was doing like a captain's log. He wasn't Captain Kirk, but he was in a white astronaut's outfit, and I could tell. And he was he was doing a he was doing a monologue. He was talking about you know I leave the 20th century behind with no regrets, <laughs> and and then I then the credits started, and I thought the movie was over because I was used to seeing credits at the end of the movie. And I thought, oh, I'm really bummed out. And then the credits were over, and the movie kept going. And uh, I, I was like, oh, my gosh, you know, a, a spaceship just crashed in a lake, and, and these astronauts are getting out of this sinking spaceship. And I remember running up to my mother, and I said, Mom, Mom, I, there's this movie on. I, you got to let me stand past my bedtime. I was like five years old. And she's like, well, what's, what's the name of the movie? I go, well, it's called... It's called Planet of the Apes. <laughs> and my mom looks at me and she starts laughing. She goes, okay, you can stay up and watch this. So it was, it was the original Planet of the Apes from 1968. Charles Heston and two other astronaut companions are trudging through the Forbidden Zone. And I have no idea what this movie is. I've never heard of this movie. I'm five. What do I know? But I just know that there's astronauts and a little some freaky stuff was happening. And then when their clothes get stolen, and then they go to the glade, and they see the mute humans eating. And then the, the apes show up on horseback. And there's this snap zoom that goes into one of the apes. The horse rears up, and you hear Jerry Goldsmith's music. It goes, I'm like some kind of a horn being blown. Yeah. I lost my shit. I was five years old, and there are apes on horseback hunting human beings and I just I was my mind was blown and I I, I, I from that moment on I'm like I, I was I was hooked I was hooked on I was like how did they make those apes mm -hmm. how did this happen and then you watch that whole movie and it was really talky and I don't think I really understood it all but there were talking apes and I couldn't get that I loved it but then at the end of the movie Spoiler alert, if you've never seen the original Planet of the Apes, when you find out, when Charlton Heston finds out that he's on Earth, and he rides up and finds the wrecked Statue of Liberty, even when I was five years old, it was the most mind-blowing thing I'd ever seen in my life. And I, I, I couldn't believe that happened. And I wanted to know about Planet of the Apes. I didn't know there were other Planet of the Apes movies. And then my mom told me, you know, there's like five Planet of the Apes movies. I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, and that, I became I became upset. I became upset. And then another movie I saw when I was like five at this impressionable age was the original War of the Worlds from from 1953. It was on Sci-Fi Theater, mm -hmm. and I was watching. And the thing that happens in that movie that again blew my young five-year-old or six-year-old mind was toward the beginning of that movie when the Martians come out of the gully. The Martian war machines start to move. There's a priest. And, you know, I was raised Jewish, but my best friend was Catholic. So I'd gone to church with him, and I knew what, you know, a priest was. A priest was a holy man, and you know, always demanded respect. And there's a priest, and he's walking toward the Martian with his cross, cross out, the Martian war machine's moving toward him, and then you hear the pulsating Martian weapon, the, 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 the beam, the Martian beam weapon. And the priest is saying, lo, though I walk through the valley, the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And the Martians fry his ass. Mm. And the priest just gets disintegrated. 
and all that's left is this charred, black, smoking shadow. And I'm, again, five or six years old, I'm like, the Martians just killed a priest. Shit just got real. <laughs> and I was like, if that shit could happen in the movies, anything could happen. And I was like, I was in, man. So Planet of the Apes and the original War of the Worlds and then Star Trek and the Twilight Zone, that was my childhood. Those are my favorite things. And then I, I discovered books and people would read to me. And it was all kind of, it all started, it all came out of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. But those things led me to other movies. You know, I, I, mm-hmm. I would find other movies that weren't, I just liked storytelling. So my parents would take me to like, the live-action Disney movies from the 70s, like Herbie the Love Bug or Candle Shoe with the young Jodie Foster or even like Swiss Family Robinson would it get re-released. So I would, I, and that led me to other movies. And then I just became sort of obsessed. And I, by the time I was like 10 years old and I got a Super 8 camera and I started making, you know, movies with my Star Wars action figures where you, you, you'd buy film, you'd shoot things, you wouldn't know what it looked like, and you'd have to take it to Photomat and wait like a week to get your film back to see what you'd shot. And I, I, I was gone, I, I, and that was it. I'm like, I want to make movies when I get older. Yeah, it's amazing that you said your parents took you at five years old because nowadays everything is so PC now. You think I don't think parents would take their kids at five years old and have them watch like Planet of the Apes, like everything is so different now, because I remember seeing A Nightmare on Elm Street at an early age, and that movie had a lot of explicit violence, and you know, like sexual innuendo, but it was a different time back then too, you know, it's it's so different, right, don't you think? Well, yeah, it, well, I think one of the biggest problems with American culture now is this idea that parents, people our age, I would go like if if there was something that would interest me, I would go to the library. 
you know, and you'd have to get on your bike and you'd have to make an effort. It wasn't like on the Internet now. You just had a few keystrokes. You could find out whatever it is you need to find out. But if you made the effort to go to the library and go get a book, when you watched it or read, if you read a book or watched a certain TV show, you, you, you were paying, you were like hyper aware of it. You were paying absolute attention because it took time and effort to get to where it was that you were at. So you paid a lot more attention, I think. Now everybody's attention span is, is, is so quick to change that nobody's really paying the kind of attention that we used to pay as children to things. Yeah. You know, like, I remember seeing War of the Worlds for the first time, seeing that priest get vaporized by the Martians, and that was something that I thought about for a long time. Mm. Like, that was, I, I knew that was some kind of a forbidden, that was a really bad thing that I'd seen, and it was really bad that this happened, but it made me realize that sometimes the Martians will kill a priest. Yeah. And if that, if you're ever invaded by Martians, <laughs> they're not going to be good. You got to, you got to be ever vigilant, <laughs> yep. and make sure the Martians aren't here. You got to fight them back. <laughs> it, it's so funny how you know you talking about when you were young, when, you know, when you're younger, um, your imagination already was running wild at the age of five. That being exposed to this, it sort of awoken the dormant, you know creativity in you that you know per led you to pursue the projects that you're doing now and you know you're talking about planet of the apes you talked about star trek being major influences on you into becoming the filmmaker that you became um do you, did your parents really encourage you to follow your dreams was it or is it something you did on your own well i, I was very lucky in that um my parents were very much, they were very encouraging. Okay. And, uh, like, I was a really obsessed kid. Like, if I knew, if I knew, like, Star Wars came out when I was 10, and I loved building models of spaceships and stuff, and I would figure out, like, there was a store, we didn't have Toys R Us in Seattle, mm -hmm. there was a, a store called World of Toys, and I, if I knew that they were going to come out with a model of the Millennium Falcon, you know, they would announce it in, in, in 1978, MPC is going to make a model of the Millennium Falcon. I would, like, call World of Toys every week as a 10-year-old. Did you get the model of the Millennium Falcon in yet? And they're like, no. You know, and I would yeah. do that for, like, six months until they got it in. And, and when they got it in, like, I wasn't a spoiled kid, but my dad knew that if he bought me a model, I would spend all week building it. It would be... You know, back then, models weren't expensive, and parents were happy to have a dusted kid, so my dad would be like, I'd like go, Dad, Dad, they got the Millennium Falcon in. you got to get it for me. And it wasn't my birthday or the holidays, so I sh he shouldn't really have bought it for me, but he knew that <laughs> if he did, it would shut me up for a week. <laughs> so my, pa my parents were always uh, really supportive, and, like, I'll, I'll never forget, like, when I was nine, year before Star Wars came out, there was a movie called Logan's Run that opened. Yeah. It came out in 1976. It was a science fiction movie, and I'd seen advertisements on TV. And again, I was obsessed. And I would have talked about this movie for weeks. And, you know, I even at nine, I would read the paper, um, and I would find, like, the movie section. So I would look and see what movies were coming out on Friday. And if I knew that a movie was coming out, I would talk about it incessantly to the point where my mom would have to tell me to shut up. 
She's like, I, can you please talk about something else? And I'd be like, but I, I, I gotta see this movie. I mean, it's like in the future, and there's people living in dome cities, and you got policemen with these cool guns that shoot blue flames. I mean, you gotta go, Mom. And my mom would have to then take me. Like, she would take me, and, and I'll never forget, we, we went we went opening night to see uh, to see Logan's run. And, and my mom, you know, she would take me because she knew how much it meant to me. And my, my, my mom, I guess, was happy that she had a kid who was interested. So I was lucky to have parents that, but, but they also provided a household where I wasn't ridiculed and my parents were happy. Like, I learned how to use the public transportation. Like, I was riding the, the bus when I was like nine years old. Wow. At the local bus in Seattle. And I would order books. You know, I'd go to the store and I would get science fiction books. And you'd, you'd see ads for other science fiction books in the back of, of books. And then I would, I would order them. And the, book, the literally Island Books, which is the bookstore, would call and say, oh, we have a book in that your, your son ordered. My mom's like, you ordered a book? <laughs> and I'd be like, yeah. You know, I saved up because back then paperback books were like a dollar. Mm. <laughs> you know, I would ride the bus and go get books and then come back. Like on a Saturday, I would, it would take me like, you know, an hour to get to the north end of where I lived, then an hour to come back, and then I would sit and read a book all day. My dad would be like, are you sure you want to be outside playing with your friends? And I'd be like, no, you you not believe what's going on in this book. And my dad's like, no, no, I don't need to know what's going on in the book. That's fine. You enjoy it. Dark Knight. 
role-playing games were big, D&D and Traveler and everything. There was this confluence of events that really was great if you're an imaginative kid. Wow. So being a kid in that imagination, um, you already had all these movies you watch and everything you from modeling to, uh, you know, you absorbed all this information and watching all these movies. Um, how did it lead you to, you know, your path in college and whatnot? Well, you know, it was interesting because there was also a lot of information for the very first time about filmmaking. Mm -hmm. And there was the making of Star Wars was on TV. Yeah, that's right. Another yeah. show on the making of Empire Strikes Back when that came out. Yeah. And suddenly you were seeing how all of these things were done. And you realized, like, oh, my God, they used models to make these special effects. And I had read the book, The Making of Star Trek, the Stephen Whitfield book, and they showed how, and I was just fascinated. And there was magazines, like Starlog magazine came out, and then Starlog published a magazine called Cinemagic that was a, a, a do-it-yourself filmmaking magazine. That was incredible. So suddenly there was all of this information about how movies are made, and it didn't seem like such a far-off notion. And then when you started, you could make your own movies. Like, I started making Super 8 movies when I was, like, 10 years old. And and then home video came out. The VCR came out, which changed my life, changed all of our lives. Yeah. You can suddenly get movies and study them. You can watch them over and over and over and over and over again. And that was mind-blowing, being able to get the movies that you, you wanted to watch whenever you wanted to watch them, because that was a brand-new thing. And so it was a very different world back then. It was all uh, unfolding. And it was like finding a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow all the time. <laughs> so it, that just stuck with me. You know, I wanted to, the idea of movie magic in it. It really made it, in the early 80s, it really made it accessible. It, you, you as a kid believed that, wait a minute, I might be able to do this. You know, and then you started hearing about people like John Carpenter went to USC. Yeah. Like there was a place where you could go to film school and you could be like John Carpenter. Yeah. You know, and maybe you could make Halloween and Escape from New York and the thing. Yeah. And George Lucas went to USC. Like, this is amazing. Where is this place? So it was, it, there was, the possibilities were endless at the time. And my parents never told me, no, you can't do that. That's a silly thing to do. My parents are like, hey, if that's what you want to do, if you work hard, you can go do that thing. Yeah. And I was lucky to have parents like that. Yeah, it's true because there's parents, you know, you know, parents are a major influence on the child's life. And, you know, these are, you know, what you wanted to do it wasn't like a cab driver or anything like that. You wanted to make movies and, you know, and, you know, everybody, you know, there's a lot of people that make movies, but not not a lot of them achieve, you know, moderate, maybe moderate to medium success. And, you know, right. having having parents encourage you and telling you, you know, do this, do this is very, very beneficial in the child's life because if that, that really can make you or break you depending on the influences you have in your life. So that's really good that they did that for you. Yeah, and I, and I think that, you know, I was a really industrious kid. Like, back in the, in the day when I got a VCR, blank video cassettes were $30 a piece. Yeah. And they were hugely expensive. And as a 13-year-old kid, 
like I had to get a job. Yeah. And so I was really industrious. It was either I was either mowing lawn. Uh, then I started. I got a job at a video store because when video stores are brand new, I would hang out at them. And these, but everybody at video stores were like in their thirties because VCRs were a thousand dollars. And back then, that was like ten thousand dollars. It was crazy. But I got I got jobs early on because I needed. My parents were not going to give me money to buy blank video cassettes because they were too expensive. So I learned early on if I wanted to buy models and I wanted to, because I was interested in so many things. It was like, it became books and it was movies and then it was model kits and then action figures. And there was all these things that I wanted. But in order to get them, I had to get my own money. And, and I realized, okay, I can get my own money. Like I had a paper route. People are like, what's a paper route now? But, you know, I, I was like, I had a paper route. And I'm like, I could make 75 bucks a month. You know, on a paper route, delivering. It was all, that was a hard job. I had 53 papers I had to deliver every day, and then and then in the morning on on um, Saturdays and Sundays, it was my paper route was seven days a week. That was a rough job walking around the neighborhood with those papers. But but I needed the money, so I would do anything I could do to get money to fuel my interest. And I think that was something else that helped me because my parents were like, they didn't have to go tell me to go get a job. You know, I had so many interests that I had to pay for that that it was, for me, it was out of necessity. I needed money out of necessity because my parents didn't give me an allowance. You know, they, they uh, but they saw from an early, from the time I was 13, I was working. And they, they didn't have to tell me. I just did that on my own. Cause, yeah, because you needed the money and you took the initiative and you did it to follow your dreams. Um, so how did you get into Hollywood, like, what was your first, you know, four-way into Hollywood? Well, it was interesting. I, I was going to school in Washington State, and Washington. I went to college for three years at a, at a very liberal arts, I call it crunchy, chewy granola college, called the Evergreen State <laughs> College, where it was founded in 1967. It was a state college, but there was no grade. It was very hippy-dippy. It was very, like, it's what you feel. But... <laughs> They had a lot of equipment, and I always wanted to go to USC. Yeah. So, you know, I transferred to USC as a senior. I had never even seen campus. I got into USC, and I, I, I moved to California, packed up all my stuff, and moved to California. And, you know, again, living in Los Angeles, being here at the epicenter of the film business, I just started going to screenings. I mean, it was I was like a kid in a candy store. I was going to USC, and suddenly school wasn't school anymore. I'm taking film classes. I'm like, oh, my God, I'm meeting, like, who's today's guest speaker? Oh, Joel Schumacher, who had just directed The Lost Boys, yeah. was going to come speak in class. And it was just, it was incredible. And if you were industrious, L.A. was a great place. Suddenly you could, there was always some local band that needed a music video. Or, and, and there was just opportunities everywhere if you wanted to go out and get them. And it was funny, I knew a woman when I was at USC, I met a, an old friend of mine, this lady. Uh, she ended up working in, in the art department on Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3. Wow. That new line was making. They just finished Nightmare on Elm Street 5, and they were moving over to make Nightmare, uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3, and the woman said, hey, you want to work? I just got out of school. Yeah. I just graduated from college. And I was 22 years old, just turned 22, and she's like, 
do you want to work on Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3? You'll, you'll just be a production assistant, but you'll be a production assistant in the art department. So they get to help build all the sets and stuff. And I'm like, are you kidding? <laughs> Sign me up. You know, and, and it was, it was, it was amazing. It was brutal. I mean, I was working 20 hours a day, six days a week. It was the greatest thing that ever happened to me. I mean, I was working on a movie set, a horror movie set, where people were getting their faces chainsawed off so I could watch real live uh, makeup effects being done. One of the stars of the movie was Ken Foray from the original Dawn of the Dead, one of my favorite films to this day of all time. I mean, it was like it was it was like a dream come true. I was 22 years old. I was on the set of a horror movie. It was the greatest thing ever. And and you know, it came out. It came as a result of having a lifelong love of something. And then the other thing that I, I was able to do growing up was I really liked people because I like people of all shapes, sizes, colors, creeds. Because you know, when you watch a lot of movies, m- movies are inherently about people all kinds of people. And I watched all kinds of movies, whether they were Hong Kong Kung Fu movies or black exploitation movies or sci-fi movies or dramas or comedies, whatever. I watched anything. And so I was always somebody that liked, when I would go places, I would want to go talk to people and find out, like, where'd you come from? My philosophy was that every single person in the world that you meet, no matter who they are, no matter where they came from, no matter what their economic background is, what their sexuality is, what their religious beliefs are, every single person in the world knows something that I don't know. Mm. And if I don't talk to that person, and if I don't have an open mind when I talk to them, I'm never going to know what it is that they know that I don't. Mm-hmm. And I found that to be true as I travel around the world. Every person you meet, it doesn't matter. I might meet a homeless guy on the street. I always talk to homeless people. I've met a lot of interesting homeless people. You know, I've bought a lot of homeless people meals and heard their stories. And and every single person has something to tell you that you don't know. And I think that that's an attitude that sort of has served me uh, well in the world. Yeah, that's pretty good that you say that because. You know, there's people of different classes, um, different ethnicities, different pay scales, as you said. But you're right about that. I never really thought about it until you just put it in perspective like that. Everybody does have a story, and it doesn't matter what walks of life they're from. You know, um, every situation is different, and every person has dealt with different situations that, you know, if you hear a certain story about it, it could influence you. It can make you feel bad about it, but it also puts something in your head that, wow, you know, this person's been through that and this is something I could write about. This is something I can, you know, make a film about or something, you know, whatever. Well, how, however you compute it in your head. But that's an interesting statement that you made. Um, what um, You made your first feature directorial debut in 1999 for Free Enterprise. Um, how did you get that off the ground from, you know, from being a production, you know, working as a trainee on Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3 to actually making your own film well it was, it was crazy because i knew my attitude was i thought that i was going to make my first movie when i was 30 mm-hmm. i started out as a production assistant at 22 but i wanted to work my way through the industry because i wanted to learn as much about the film business as i could mm-hmm. so after i worked on texas chance massacre 3 i was lucky to get a job at warner brothers and i worked as a, what was called a management trainee for the senior vice president of production. 
movies were made at the studio level. It was a great job. It was an amazing experience. And then I found, and as I lived here, I, I met more and more people. Yeah. And I got to work with more and more people. And somebody would say, would you want to come be an assistant editor on this project? I'd be like, well, sure. And then I would start in my spare time directing music videos or industrial. Like a friend of mine would have a band and they'd be like, you know, we'd love to have a music video. And I'll be like, I'll make you a music video. Wow. No, and, and you just you just did things. You went out and worked, and you made stuff, and you learned your craft, and you would meet other people, and and um, you know when you well, the great thing about working on a movie is you meet so many different people on movies that if they like you, if if because working on movies is, is a strange it's a strange microcosm of humanity because you have people from all different. Uh, stratas of society. They're, you know, very wealthy producers who are at the top. Then there's, like, the, the, the electrical, the Griffin electrical people who are very blue-collar, you know, and then there's the creative people. I mean, it really is a microcosm of society. But if you're somebody that gets along with people on a movie set, that's what's really important, is that you get along with people and that you work well and play well with others. And when you do that, your network expands in L.A., and suddenly you're meeting people, and then you, you work on a project with them, and you might not see them for a year or two, then you run into them again. And that's kind of what I did. I was bouncing around, and I was working on these films, and um, I, I had edited a, I edited a trailer uh, for this guy, for his movie. It was a terrible Quentin Tarantino ripoff. <laughs> I edited a trailer, a coming attraction trailer, and, and he liked what I did, and he said, well, kid, what do you think of the movie? I think I said, I think the movie's terrible, but I think there's a much better movie than what you have. And he said, okay, well, uh, why don't you re-edit the whole movie? I'll pay you money for two weeks, and if you come up with something better, I'll go with your cut of the movie. So well. I basically moved into the edit bay, I re-edited the film, and he loved what I did. And then he said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I want to write and direct movies, and I kind of have this idea, so I brought my friend Mark Altman in, who I've been writing, I've been writing for his magazine, and he and I ultimately came up with the script for Free Enterprise, which was basically about us. We wrote this autobiographical story about our lives in L.A. with this fantasy element of meeting William Shatner, mm. and um, everyone liked the script. So suddenly we had written a script based on our own lives, with a, a financier who was interested in, in bankrolling the movie because he'd seen what I'd done on an earlier project. And suddenly we were making, you know, we were making movies. And as I've told people, work begets work. Like everybody now, you, everybody wants to go from zero to 60. Like nobody wants to put the time in. They just, I want to be a YouTube star. You know, I want to have mm -hmm. my own YouTube channel and make millions of dollars. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't work that way. You know, you're, you, you are, your, your career is a collection of all of these things that you've done. I've, I've, I was not so lucky as my very good friend Brian Singer, who decided in college, he said, I'm going to be a movie director. And he was singularly focused on becoming a movie director. But I liked so many different things that I never focused the way he did. I wish I had, because I would have had the kind of career he had. But there's so many different things I like. Like right now, I'm editing this low-budget indie comedy, but I love editing, you know, and of course I'd love to be directing more movies, but barring that, I've been editing, you know, and then I got involved in the DVD world, because that was something new, and, 
you know like you said you know you got to travel around the world you got to do so many different things and um pretty pretty much you know it got you free enterprise basically so um doing everything that that you've been doing so far and um all the goals you've been setting for yourself and you've been achieving um how how is it like being in the industry and um is is the perception you had before the same or is it is it um is it totally different since you're in the industry like how is it being in it well the the industry has has significantly changed since i was a kid okay and it's it's really changed in the last 20 years and what's happened is uh so much content is being produced and it's consumed so many different ways. Uh, people are watching movies streaming on Netflix, or they're watching them on their phones, or they're downloading them, or they're watching them on Blu-ray. And there's so much content out there that it's no longer special like it was. I mean, it, I, I still have a, you know, to me, movies are somewhat holy. But now there's so much great content everywhere, whether it's you're watching Game of Thrones that they spend $10 million an episode on. I mean, TV is fantastic. Uh, there's so many great TV shows. I mean, whether they're science fiction. I mean, I can't, I can't believe how many superhero shows are on <laughs> yeah. TV now. But the problem is that, um, you know, you used to be able to go watch a low-budget, like John Carpenter's Halloween costs $300,000, and it would play in a movie theater. But now there's so much content out there, it requires so much money to market a movie, to get people to go see in a theater, that very few movies now get into the theaters. Like a $300,000 movie would wind up on Netflix, or it would be streaming. And the money just doesn't exist anymore. Like what I used to do, I would used to make $5,000 a week editing a movie. Well now, you know, unless I'm working on a major studio release, you know, like hundreds of millions of dollars, nobody gets paid that anymore. So if I'm working on a low-budget low movies now, are all made $2 million or less. And, and that's a hard life to live because you don't make nearly the kind of money that you used to make. So you're either working on $2 million or less indie movies, like I'm doing now, or you're working on a TV show where you're getting some really decent money, or you're working on a giant studio tent pole. But, you know, you don't see mid-level movies anymore. You don't see 30, 40, and $50 million movies being put out by the studios because they're all putting out, you know, Fantastic Beasts. Yeah. Or they're putting out Doctor Strange. Or they're putting out these big movies now or these big events. The studios, there's no mid-level of the studio. Like, I, I developed and produced a horror film uh, in 2009 called The Hills Run Red. And we were going to make it for $350,000, but I was able to flip it to Warner Brothers, and we made it for $4 million. But even now, no one would make a $4 million horror film like The Hills Run Red. They'd give me $750,000. But 
at least I got to go to Bulgaria and make that movie. I mean, the, the business has changed, so it's, there's a lot more content being created now, but it, it's there's a lot less money being spent overall on various things unless you're working on that big tentpole stuff. So it's much harder to get noticed as a director or a producer or as a writer, and it's a lot harder to forge a career. A lot of people make one movie, one and done. Mm-hmm. It's hard to stick it out. It's hard to stay in the game. And I think one of the things that has kept me in the game is the diversification. I'll either I'll produce a movie, then I'll go back to doing Star Trek documentaries, then I'll come back and edit another movie. So I've been able to bounce around and, and keep my career going. Or then I'll be on a show like Collider Heroes and make a few bucks that way. Um, you know, or somebody will pay me to go to a convention, which is great. Mm-hmm. So there's all kinds of different ways to make money now, but it's harder, and I think it's harder across the board. Anywhere in America, it's harder. The old ways, you know, getting a manufacturing job at a, at a, at a steel plant, or those, that world is gone too. I mean, we saw Trump was elected by, by a group of, of voters that want to see the old manufacturing jobs come back to America. They want to see the old ways come back. But those old ways are gone forever, and you have to adapt. You have to change. You have to evolve, uh, or you're going to be left behind. And you know, so I don't complain. I just figure that figure out new ways to sort of live my life. Yeah, I'm saying you kind you kind you kind of hit it right there because as you're saying yourself, you always evolve. You never stay the same, right? Right. I mean, you can't. And you know, America used to be a place where you you buy a house, you'd have a job for 35 or 40 years, you'd retire, and that would be the end of it. Well, now, that isn't true. You, you, you have to be like a shark. You have to be constantly moving. You, have, you can't rest on your laurels. Technology is changing so rapidly. Our world is changing so rapidly. We're becoming global. Uh, the Chinese markets matter to Hollywood now. The European markets matter. Uh, the world has changed. And I, for one, embrace that change. I think change is great. It keeps us all on our toes. And, you know, when you've got guys like Clint Eastwood making movies until they're 85 years old, you know, Ridley Scott's going to be 80, Martin Scorsese's in his late 70s. I mean, you don't stop, you know. The, the old ways are gone. And I think a lot of people are fearful that, about that, but I, I don't. I mean, it's like, you know, it's like people of all shapes, sizes, colors, creeds. They're getting married. They're traveling around the world. You know, you're meeting people of different ethnic backgrounds, and you're falling in love. And, look, I think there's the most beautiful people in the world are the people that come from multi-ethnic backgrounds, whether it's uh, an Asian black kid or a, or a Hispanic Indian kid. I mean, we're, we're these interesting mixes and flavors of people that are creating even more interesting mixes and flavors of people. And it, it just makes the world a more interesting place. You know, I, I, I think it's great. And I think it's, it's the future and it's, it's evolution. And the idea that, that you rest on your laurels is just, those, those old ways are gone. So... No, I think yeah, you're you're totally right about that. You know, um, times change, and you have to. You know, there's people who resist change, but you have no other alternative but to change and just go on. You know, adapt with the times. But there's a lot of people that are complacent in life and are afraid of it because 
it's you know it basically comes down to the fear of the unknown so uh, for a lot of people that's really intimidating yeah i mean i grew up as a star trek fan and you know i watch star trek every night and what is the first thing that you hear to boldly go where no one is or it starts the old classic star trek mm -hmm. to boldly go where no man has gone before then the next generation they change it to boldly go where no one has gone before and mm -hmm. i always thought you know, that applied to me. Yeah. You've got to boldly go in your own life. Mm -hmm. You know, go where you've never gone before. Go out of your comfort zone. Mm -hmm. and, and get a passport. Go have an adventure. Mm -hmm. Go someplace that you've never been. What's the harm? You know, why be scared of that? I mean, if you're a young guy, you're 18 years old, you get out of high school, go to Europe, go have a romance with a girl that doesn't speak your language. <laughs> you know, it's, what more? How exciting is that? Yeah. <laughs> Go to a city you've never been to before. You know, I mean, that's, that's, there's, 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 that's what makes life interesting. And you, you know what? I've never talked to anybody really who's gone someplace that, that, and really had a bad time. You know? Yeah. Go have an adventure. I mean, even play a game with yourself. Like, on a weekend, get a buddy, get a friend, and pick a place that's 100 miles from where you live. A place you've never been. And say, you know what, on Saturday, we're going to go to wherever. Find if there's some local festival or some crazy, like, it's the cherry-picking festival in whatever town it is. <laughs> and and get, up, get up at 8 o'clock, 6 in the morning, Pack your shit, be in the car by 8, drive the, the two hours it takes to go 100 miles or whatever, and by 10 o'clock, you'll be somewhere you've never been before. Yeah. Walk around, go talk to people, find out, go see what's there, you know? And, and then stay there and, and have lunch and dinner, and walk around, and then leave by 8 o'clock at night, and you're home by 10. And you've had an adventure. You've had an adventure in your own backyard. And how? How? And then you'll want to travel further. You know, with that friend of yours, you'll go. You'll want to make save up money. Save up fifty bucks a week. You know, for six months, and then plan a trip to another country where you've never been before. And 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 go meet people that you've never been. They're not going to bite you. Well, some might, but you know. <laughs> So what? They're not the walking dead. You're not going to get infected and then die. <laughs> you might learn something. You'll eat food you've never eaten before. Look like Anthony Bourdain. Go travel around the world. Yeah. I think if more people have that attitude, it's fun. Yeah. It's fun. It's fun and exciting, and you'll have a good time. Yeah. Um, what has been the most memorable moment in your life so far?
that was amazing. I mean, that whole experience was incredible. Um, you know, being in New Zealand, uh, watching Return of the King in Peter Jackson's house when it was a very, very early cut. Wow. was amazing. Um, being, being in my first time in Europe, I, the first night I was there, I met a, 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 an amazing woman. I had an incredible, very romantic evening with a <laughs> Spanish girl the first night I was ever in Europe. That was amazing just because it was so unexpected and incredible. It was just like you'd want it to be. Um, being at the, the very first Star Trek convention in Paris, uh, that was amazing. Being in Israel. I was in Israel showing my movie in Israel, and I got to go to Jerusalem. Mm. You know, and that was amazing. Mm. Um, living for a year in Sydney, Australia, working on Superman Returns was incredible. Just being in Sydney, uh, incredible. Being in Tamworth, which was 450 miles inland from Sydney, and and staying with this couple that had never left this small town in Australia. And I would tell them stories about what the outside world was like. <laughs> I mean, you know, it was it, winning awards. Um, God, just, I've had so many interesting experiences and met so many interesting people, you know. Um, crazy. Wow. So many, I mean, if I were to die tomorrow, I would, I, I would have no regrets. Okay, and then that leads to my that leads to my next question. Any regrets? You just said no regrets. You don't have any regrets at all. You know what? I, I mean, I have regrets. I have regrets in terms of how I've managed my own career. Yeah. I wish I had like uh, uh, when I finished Free Enterprise. I wish I had another movie that I had ready to go. Mm -hmm. I figured uh, you should always have a plan B. I figured my my buddies and I we were starting a film company and and couple strange things happened and we kind of stopped working together and I wasn't expecting that. So I didn't have another film ready to go. You can't rest on your laurels. I should have, when Free Enterprise came out, it was winning film festival awards and, and people wanted to know what I wanted to make next. I should have had something ready to go. Um, I would have been, I, you know what, I would have been more honest with some of the women in my life. You know, I, yeah. I, I was a little too closed off, and I wasn't as open with them as I should be. Wow. I should have been. Because yeah. uh, I wasn't good at that, which was funny. I was so used to going out and going around in the world. I wasn't, I wasn't as used to sharing myself with people as I should have been. Um, I wish I was a little bit closer to my family after I left Seattle. I was so... Um, obsessed with my career and a, a little too self-absorbed, I think. Mm -hmm. And, you know, right now I, I'm unmarried and childless. So wow. that, that, that's probably my biggest regret. Wow. But there's, as people say, there's, there's still time. Yep, true. <laughs> Never too late. <laughs> I was going to ask you too, also, what would you do if you couldn't be an editor or a filmmaker in the entertainment industry? What would you be doing otherwise? I mean, I've often thought that um, a, a career in the military might have been interesting. Oh, wow. Okay. Or, uh, you know, I, I, I only because, not necessarily because I want to fight, but it would have been interesting to travel and to sort of be an ambassador for the country mm -hmm. and you know, work 
working your way up out of out of being a, a, a grunt. But having I have friends that went into the military and are career military officers, and, and I've been impressed with them as people and what they've done. Um, it would have been interesting to do something that afforded me a chance to travel, maybe some kind of foreign service. Um, or I, I hate to say it, being an astronaut. <laughs> I would have I would have liked to have done that. Um, you know, or but but some place that, that allowed me our planet and the people on our planet are amazing. And we take this planet for granted, everything about it. And I, I just think that I I hope that I get to experience a lot more of this planet and a lot more of the wondrous people on it mm-hmm. before I kick off this mortal coil. Um, because people, uh, I, I think people are the most amazing resource that the earth has. And I hope that we all come to recognize that, uh, and experience it because I think it would be helpful for everybody. Uh, People are not scary. Mm -hmm. We should not be scared of, of each other. Um, I think when it, when it comes right down to it, when you have, if you travel around the world and you meet people, everybody would be surprised at uh, how welcoming people are. Yeah. You know, sure, there's crazy ideologues and, and, and people that will kill you. <laughs> like, <laughs> But for the most part, if you stay away from those areas, you'll find that the world is, is an inviting place and it's exciting. And I think there's not, there's not, it's hard to have more fun and have a more enriching time than you have when you travel and you meet people and you go to cultures that you've never been to before. That's true. And you, people you've never met before. Mm-hmm. What has been your worst loss in life? My worst loss? Mm-hmm. I think my dad. Yeah. You know, I, I, I was very lucky. My dad was older when I was born, and I, uh, he was actually in Free Enterprise. Oh, wow. he, came, he was in the movie. I put him in a scene, a couple of scenes. He plays a bartender, and he was in a, a scene with William Shatner. Yeah. And that was one of my great accomplishments in life, getting my dad into a scene with my, my two childhood idols, my dad and William Shatner. And I got him together in a scene where my dad, who was a lifelong cigar smoker, uh, got to give William Shatner a cigar and light it <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a movie scene. So that was amazing. Um, but I, I miss him, you know. Um, he had a great life, though. And, and uh, you know, he was not sick for very long. He didn't have a long, protracted illness. He died when he was 83, so he had a good life. But I miss my dad because he was a great guy, and uh, he was always having fun, too. And he liked people. Yeah. You know, I, I think I learned from my dad uh, that he was like, never be afraid to walk into any room full of people because yeah. you'll have a good time if you just walk through that door. Yeah. But if there's a room full of people you, you don't know, people that you've never met, don't ever be afraid to walk in that room, smile, look people in the eye, and know that there, there's, there's going to be somebody there that you want to meet, but that more importantly wants to meet you. And um, that's kind of what my dad taught me. Mm-hmm. And he was right. Mm-hmm. He was right. Mm-hmm. But I, I miss him. 
Yeah. I know my dad passed away too and um you know, I do miss him as well and you know, you know how they say, you know, you move on and you do things, but you know, it's always like as what I my my experience is when you're busy, you tend not to remember it as much, but it's just when the holidays creep up on you and birthdays and stuff, and then it's like when you start to reminisce and you start to think. So it's always there, though. It's always there. Yeah, and, and, and again, but that's life. You know, yeah. you, you know you're going to lose a parent. The, the thing that's important is to never let the losses uh, defeat you. Mm-hmm. I know it sounds kind of like, Raw, raw, raw college sports movie, you know. Yeah, like, go team. <laughs> Friday Night Lights, you know, yeah. or something like that. But, but it's true. You know, you can't allow law. Everyone suffered losses, and I'll tell you, I've I've been privileged enough to not. I've been lucky. I was lucky where I grew up. I was lucky. Uh, if people scream white privilege, I was lucky to have that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but. <laughs> You know, I, 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 and I don't apologize for that because I can't, I, I was adopted, mm-hmm. you know, I was lucky. I was adopted, uh, by a biological mother who I actually met, uh, was 17 when she had me. And, and, um, you know, I, I, I totally am pro-choice. I believe in a woman's right to choose. I believe in reproductive rights for everybody, but I, I was, I was for adoption, and I am very aware of that, and I was very close to never existing at all. So I'm very happy that I've had this time on on the planet Earth, and I just I just want to have a great time and, and drink it all in. Mm-hmm. And as long as I can be doing things that I want to be doing and having a good time and meeting other people that are are also doing things they want to do and having a good time. Um, and you know what? There's nothing better than finding other people coming together and and working with them to make something greater. The, the one great thing about working on movies, I think the greatest thing, is you get all of these really talented people, and when it's really clicking, they're all working to make this thing. They're all working to make this movie that when they do it right, a movie will bring joy to people for years to come. Yeah. You know, the great movies will, will last for decades, if not hopefully, we don't know yet, but maybe centuries if not millennia, and, and everybody in the world, no matter what their political ideology, their, their beliefs, their creed, their color, their sexuality, you go into a movie theater and the lights go down and everybody forgets who they are and they forget the differences that they have with other people and they give themselves over for 90 minutes or two hours to the story that unfurls before them on a movie screen. And that story, it took hundreds if not thousands of people to make. So the collective efforts of all of those people to work on those movies, if they're they're good, if they turn out great, if that alchemy, that magic happens, and they're great movies that people love the world over, it brings people to be buddy, to watch a film in that darkened room together and get something out of it. And I think that that's worthwhile. That'll always be worthwhile. And I'm happy to be a part of, of that industry. Yeah. Um, what is your personal motto, Robert? My personal motto? Um, God, that's a good question. I don't, I don't know. You know, I, I, I think I think I have to bring it back 
I have to bring it back to Star Trek. Yeah. You know, I, I, I always think about, you, you must boldly go. Mm -hmm. But instead of boldly go where no man has gone before or no one has gone before, boldly go where you've never gone before. Yeah. You know, live life in a bold fashion. Go have adventures. You know, move out of your comfort zone. Go do things that, that might scare you a little bit, that'll broaden your horizon. You know, just boldly go through life. Mm -hmm. And um, and and you've, you've got you've to take control of your own life and boldly go because nobody's going to do it for you. And you only have one chance. I mean, what, don't ever be scared. What are you scared of? You know, there's nothing to be scared of. And uh, I guess that's my motto. I mean, uh, you know, it, that's what it is. It's boldly go, boldly live. And uh, and be proud, and 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 be proud of what you can do. And remember, as I said before, other people know something that you don't know, but you have to remember that you know something that they don't know. Mm -hmm. Everybody has a story to tell. Everybody has a story to tell that's worth telling. And if you don't believe me, think about this: if people are like, "Oh, I don't have a story to tell," here's one: uh, Who was the first person you kissed? Mm -hmm. Or who was the first person you didn't kiss? Mm -hmm. At a certain point, everybody has that story. Yeah. And it's a story I haven't heard because everybody's story is different. Mm -hmm. You know? And, and you, what was the first pet that you had? Yeah. You know? Everybody, you just have to find that common ground. Everybody has a story to tell. And you have a story that everybody else has yet to hear. Mm -hmm. And I think that's important. That's awesome. And um, my final question for you, Robert, is what would the Robert of today tell the Robert of yesterday? That, uh, that I should buckle down a little bit more. If I was able to meet my younger self, I would mm -hmm. say uh, if you focused a little bit more and, and you worked harder at that focus, you might have more things that you wanted in this life yeah. and the same but on the other hand i don't know if that would i know that i would have probably more financial security than i have now yeah and i might have i might have a family i might have children mm -hmm. but i think i think life does require focus and uh you know i certainly have worked hard i've done a lot of work but I've kind of been all over the place. Mm -hmm. And if I followed Brian Singer's advice more and stayed a little bit more focused, um, I might be a little better off and I might wield a little bit more power now to get the project completed that I want to complete. Yeah. Amazing, amazing. So that's probably what I would tell my younger self. Uh, um, Robert, um. That was amazing. Um, I wish I had a lot more time to talk to you. There's so much more things I want to ask you. Um, definitely um, plug your social media. Plug plug anything you have coming up. Well, you know, I'm um, I'm working on a on a film, uh, an independent film. I like to call it an indie Jewish spiritual quest dance comedy mm. called Tango Shalom. Mm. That's what I'm working on now. I, hopefully, that'll be out in, sometime in 2017. Uh, I directed a comedy special uh, 
four African-American comedians in Belize, of all places. Uh, we took them around all around Belize and shot them experiencing the world, and then they did a stand-up comedy special. That should be out sometime in 2017. Uh, a movie called My 11th that I edited, which is a very dark uh, story about a serial killer. I got that coming out. And, uh, you know, check out the Star Trek The Next Generation box set with all the documentaries I worked on for three years. That was just 99 bucks at Amazon on Blu-ray. We did like 50 hours of documentaries. If you're a Star Trek fan, that just came out last June. A uh, movie I edited, a low-budget sci-fi movie called Paradox. Mm-hmm. is playing on uh, Netflix now. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can watch me every week on Collider Heroes, which is on YouTube. Yeah. Um. What you got coming up this week on oh. Collider? What's that? What do you have coming on this week on Collider? You know what? We're talking about a lot of a lot of news drops. Uh, the Inhumans TV series was announced today. Yeah, I heard about um, that. Yeah. There's the four-way crossover with the Dominators coming to Earth on the CW shows. That's pretty cool. Um, I heard it was pretty interesting that uh, Ryan Reynolds talked about how they had to they had to allow Marvel to use Ego, the Living Planet, for Guardians of the Galaxy in exchange for changing the powers of Negasonic Teenage Warhead in Deadpool. Yeah. I thought that was interesting. They swapped Deadpool action for um, Guardians of the Galaxy two action. That was neat. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Uh, that's what we're going to talk about on Collider this year. And also, I'll be competing in December, on uh, December 23rd, uh, the Schmoes Know, that's on Collider video. They're going to have the ultimate Schmodown movie trivia battle. I, I will be participating in that in a five-way movie trivia battle. I hope uh, I hope I hold my own. It's going to be tough. I'll be battling Ashley Robinson and Jeremy John, who just joined the Collider team, so that should be cool. Oh, wow, what an interesting matchup. Wow. I know, right? Yeah. So, so there's that. I mean, it's Campia. It's, it was Hector, Campia, Jeremy John, me, and Ashley Robinson are going to go five-way head-to-head. <laughs> wow. This should be it's interesting. crazy. Yeah, it's it's the questions they come up with on the uh, showdown is interesting, and you know, you know, as as watching it on YouTube, you would you would think you would know the answers, but it's just like uh, uh, I don't know, I don't know. So, best of luck to you for that. Oh, it's rough, man. It's rough because like you get tripped up by your own knowledge. Like I I did Team Heroes with Schnepp, and the second battle, they asked me one of the questions was what two actors have been killed by a Terminator, an alien, and a Predator. And, you know, the first thing that popped into my mind was, of course, Bill Paxton. Yeah. But I didn't say Bill Paxton. Even though it was in my mind, and I'm thinking about, wait a minute, Lance Henderson. I'm like, well, Bishop, did he die in Aliens? And then he comes back as the Bishop in Alien 3, but did he die then? So you trip your, your, your own yeah. arcane knowledge trips you up. And, and you, you just like... I mean, I, I, it's crazy. It's, you think you know these things, but when you feel the pressure, it's hard. It's a lot harder than you think. Yeah. And uh, it, it's rough, but, but the five-way showdown should be interesting. They've never done that before. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm, I'm a little nervous, but hopefully uh, it'll work out. Oh, I wish you the best of luck, Robert. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to have you on. 
And I hope everybody out there was intellectually stimulated by way of mobile devices. Have a good one, folks. <laughs>